This morning, I'm going to share with you uh, out of the book of Matthew, and in doing so, look at chapter 16. And let me just warn you before I get into this sermon, we're going to be looking at a familiar passage of Scripture. And one of the things that is problematic when we look at familiar passages of Scripture is that we think in ourselves, I've heard this before, I've seen it before, I've heard it preached before, I'm familiar with the text, therefore, there is nothing new for me to learn. So let me scroll social media and miss out on my breakthrough because I'm checked out. (laughs) And can I tell you, the reason why the word is both living and active is because you could read something like John 3.16 a thousand times, but on the thousand and first time, God had dropped new revelation into your heart. It would change everything about you. It's not because the word is changing. It's because the word is changing you. And how many of you know when you're changed, when you're in a new season, when you're in a new mindset, a new framework, a new family system, you can read something old, but what it will carry within it is new life because it speaks to your contextual situation. And what I love about scripture is you never get tired of not just being in the word, but allowing the word to be in you because it causes the deep things of your heart to come to life. And so as we go to Matthew 16, and as you think to yourself, I've heard this before. Yeah, me too. But I'm telling you, there is something in it fresh for you this morning. And we say, God, let it be unto us according to your word. The Bible is unlike any other book that has ever been written in all of human history. It is not just a record of what was. It is a prophetic declaration of what is and what is to come. It's not just a historical manuscript. It's not just prophetic or apocalyptic literature. It's not just some sort of text that is in a museum that we observe through a theological construct because it's really interesting for us to deconstruct. No, the Bible still is today the authoritative, inspired, sufficient word of God. And within it, it contains the seeds of life that if you will plant them in the soil of your heart, it will grow into a harvest that is bountiful for you and for your sphere of influence. We are people of the word. We build our lives on the word. We're not trying to change the word to match every new cultural heresy of our day. I know it ain't politically correct. I know it ain't culturally correct, but I'm trying to be biblically correct. Let God be true. Let every man be a liar. We are unashamed to stand on the word of God. (laughs) Now in Matthew 16, the scriptures communicate to us this story. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples this question, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so they responded to him, look, some say that you're John the Baptist and and others say that you're Elijah. Some folks say you're Jeremiah or even one of the other prophets. By the time that Matthew 16 is recording this story, This ragtag group of 12 men have followed Jesus for three years. As he travels around Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria with one central message. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. And the kingdom is advancing. In fact, the most talked about topic in the entirety of the New Testament is the kingdom of of God. Watch the things that Jesus says. He says, unless you have faith like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom. He tells his disciples, you have been entrusted with the mysteries of the kingdom. 
He tells the crowd, seek first the kingdom. He tells his followers, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He tells those who are downtrodden, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Jesus preached the kingdom, he prayed the kingdom, he taught the kingdom, and he built the kingdom. But a kingdom can't exist without a king who rules and reigns supreme. And for three years, these disciples have heard these sermons. For three years, the crowds have seen the miracles. For three years, the religious leaders have been outraged by the audacity of Jesus to renegotiate the Mosaic law. But not until Matthew 16 does Jesus begin to address what I call the elephant in the room. If there is a kingdom, then there must be a king. So where is that king? And when will he appear? And how will he save his people? For just a moment today, would you think about the type of men who are following Jesus? Matthew was a, was a tax collector. Simon was a, was a political zealot. Judas was a bad bookkeeper. Andrew, Peter, James, and John were fishermen. I often say out of the 12, 11 didn't understand him and one wanted to kill him. None of these men are theological experts or religious scholars because if they were, they would have been rabbis. And three years into the journey of following this man named Jesus, they are bursting at the scene to get an answer to this question. Sometimes we think that maybe as soon as Jesus called these men to be disciples, they had instantaneous revelation on the fullness of who Jesus was. Like when Jesus is standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and beckons to the fishermen in their boat to go ahead and follow him, they gazed upon the shores and saw a golden halo above Jesus' head, and he wasn't really walking, he was mostly floating above the ground, and they bowed down in worship and said, truly, This is the incarnate son of the living God. But that is not the case. Oh, they liked Jesus. They followed Jesus. But they weren't entirely sure what they were signing up for or who they were committed to following. Oh, they've seen the miracles. They know he teaches with authority. They know he rebukes the religious leaders. But who exactly is this Jesus? Let me prove it to you. In Luke 7, the disciples asked Jesus, are you the one? Or should we wait for another? In Matthew 13, the disciples are frustrated and tell Jesus, we don't understand your parables. Talk to us like a normal person. In John 13, the disciples are confused about why Jesus would wash their feet because this isn't the behavior of a respected rabbi. So Jesus tells them this great statement. What I am doing now, you don't understand, but later you will. Thanks, Jesus. By the way, the older I get, the more I recognize this is my life verse. I don't understand what you're doing now. But later, I will. And here's what I found. Number one, God doesn't owe me an explanation. 
Number two, I'll never develop unless I learn how to trust him in the dark. And number three, the longer you walk with him, the better he gets. When you don't understand, the best thing that you can do is keep walking. Because the longer you walk, the better he gets. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had to keep walking if they wanted the revelation of who Jesus was. The blind man in Mark 8 had to walk out of his village if he wanted his closed eyes to be opened again. When Jesus healed the lame, his express instruction to them was to pick up their mat and start walking. See, when I quit walking, I quit learning. When I quit learning, I quit growing. When I quit growing, I start dying. And when I start dying, I start stinking. Are there things that you don't understand today about the way Jesus works? Join the club. The best thing that you can do for your faith is to keep going, to keep working, to keep giving, to keep attending, to keep praying, to keep worshiping, because the longer you walk, the better he gets. Jesus, knowing the anxiety that troubles the disciples' hearts, knowing that his time is short, knowing that his betrayal and crucifixion are right around the corner, walks with his disciples into a region named Caesarea Philippi. And he uses this landscape as the backdrop for his grand reveal. Oh, and what a place Caesarea Philippi was. See, the Greco-Roman culture was spiritual. Their problem was that they were just spiritual in the wrong direction. The citizens of the empire worshiped the gods and goddesses of their mythology. Oh, they've got gods for everything. They've got gods for war and gods for peace and gods for sex and gods for the air and the water and the land. They got gods in the underworld that must be appeased. They've got gods in the sky that must be feared. And Caesarea Philippi was the ultimate example of a pagan people worshiping pagan gods. And it seemingly makes no sense why Jesus would reveal himself there why not in the temple why not in Bethlehem where he was born why not in Nazareth where he did the miracles why not near the sea of Galilee where he walked on water why not on Bethany where his friend Lazarus lived why would Jesus make the most crucial announcement of his entire earthly ministry in a place that he had never visited before that was known for death darkness and dysfunction See, Caesarea Philippi was a cesspool of spiritual darkness, demonic resistance on a level so profane it was even shocking to the people of the first century. It let me show you today an artistic rendering of what this city would have looked like during the time of Jesus. It was located next to the highest mountain in all of Israel. The pagans believed in setting up altars in the high places. So they built altars to Baal and they set up their Asherah poles and they built temples to every Greek god under the sun because they believed that if we could go to the high place, that the Greek gods would give us authority in the low places. 
In total, there were 14 temples to different gods in this geographic location. Because Caesarea Philippi is located on the highest mountain in Israel, it was seen as an intrinsically spiritual place where the pagans would gather to conduct their sacrifices. See, every region had a chief deity that it worshipped. In Caesarea Philippi, they worshipped the Greco-Roman god named Pan. A half-man, half-goat god who oversaw nature, Shepherds, flock, fields, music, and fertility. In fact, in the picture on the screen today, you will see him playing what is commonly known as the pan flute or the pan whistle. In fact, it's interesting. The English word panic is etymologically connected to the Greek god pan. According to the legends of the first century, Pan would strike irrational fear in the hearts of the people that would cause them to flee at random times for no apparent reason. Therefore, the word panic was used to describe the behavior that the god Pan would induce. And you might think that that sounds ridiculous. But if a half man, half goat playing a weird whistle materialized behind you, you would run in existential fear as well. Caesarea Philippi is ground zero. It is the most central and concentrated place of demonic authority, activity, and worship that exists in its day. They participated in animal sacrifice, child sacrifice, and sexual perversion, all in an attempt to please their gods. The disciples are probably elbowing each other as they walk into this destination city for witches and warlocks, thinking to themselves, oh, Jesus really lost his mind this time. Doesn't he know what this place is known for? Doesn't he know that no self-respecting Jew would ever step foot in this type of demonic territory and what does Jesus do he gathers up the team for a quick huddle and he says guys this is the perfect place to make the most important announcement that you have all been waiting for since the day I called you by name and here it is who do men say that I am? And by the way, Jesus doesn't ask questions for his benefit. He asks them for yours. And Jesus is not having an existential identity crisis, needing all of his friends to validate his inferiority complex. What are they saying about me? Do they like me? Do they like what I wore on Sunday? Am I preaching good enough? Am I healing good enough? If I were a worm, would they still love me? Please, somebody validate my insecurity. No, friend, the greatest teachers are not the ones who give you all of the answers, but instead lead you along the right path until your soul is ready to ask the right questions. Three years in, the greatest teacher to ever live had led the disciples to this very moment and watch their response. Oh, the crowds like you, Jesus. They're just not sure what to do with you. They don't know if you are from God or if you are of God. They're willing to call you a prophet because they can't deny that you walk in power, but you just don't look like the one that we We've been waiting for. 
They were hoping for an Elijah to rescue them from their problems. But we don't know if they're ready for a Jesus who is going to ransom them from their sin. So Jesus now inverts the question. It's no longer what do the crowds say about me. But in verse 15, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And I love this in classic Simon Peter fashion. He's the first one to raise his hand. Peter has like this long history of sticking his foot in his mouth. About half the time he gets blessed for it and the other half the time he gets rebuked for it. (laughs) And Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and Peter is like, nah, you ain't gonna wash my feet. It's not how this works. And Jesus is like, well, if you wanna enter into my kingdom, I have to wash your feet. And Peter's like, all right, wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, now that's weird. I'm just trying to wash your feet. (laughs) And he tells Jesus, I'll never let you go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God. And then he tells Jesus, I'm your number one fan. I never leave you. I never forsake you. I'll never deny you. And Jesus like, in fact, you will three times before the crow, before the chicken, whatever it's called, the rooster. It's been a long day. But I love this. Peter kind of raises his hand, and I imagine the other disciples are like, here we go. Watch, watch, watch. He's going to say the dumbest thing ever. Watch, 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 watch. Peter is losing his spot amongst the 12. Here it is, here it is, here it is. And Simon Peter answers, and he says this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. (laughs) Friend, hear me. You cannot live vicariously through someone else's declaration. You need a declaration of your own. I don't want you to worship the one that Jesus, pre- that, that, that Russell preaches about. I don't want you to serve the one that the worship team sings about. I don't want you to honor the one that your grandma, or your grandpa, or your mom, or your dad talked about. You need an encounter with Jesus for yourself. And I think one of the things that is rife in the Western church today is we have learned to live vicariously through somebody else's faith, somebody else's declaration somebody else's obedience, somebody else's passion. But the problem is when you go through crisis, you need a faith of your own. You need to wrestle with God and work it out in fear and trembling. You gotta know that you know that you know that you're built on the rock and the foundation that is higher than I. You've gotta have an encounter with the living God that you cannot shake. It's not just what I heard in a classroom. It's not just what I saw talked about on a stage. I have met Jesus who is the Christ and he is not son of a dead God. He is son of a living God. And he, in him I live and move and have my being. You need an encounter with this Jesus for yourself. That's why you can't tune out on a Sunday morning. You can't rely on your family system to fill in the gaps. You've got to develop a heart that says, God, you said seek your face, and your face I will seek, and I will live the rest of my life in passionate pursuit of who you are. Living vicariously through somebody else is like chewing someone else's bubble gum after it's lost its flavor.
You've got the activity, but you don't got none of the juice. <laughs> it looks like she's moving your job, but you don't got none of the flavor. You talk about him, but you haven't met him. You can say all the right words, but you haven't experienced him. You might know the Greek, but do you know God? You might know the Hebrew, but have you met him? This Jesus is not interested in a corporate relationship, but a personal relationship. Watch what happens. Peter responds, you are the Christ, which means this. Sometimes people think, my nine-year-old was asking me this the other day. He said, what is Jesus' last name? I said, I'm not sure, but it's not Christ. Christ is a title, and here's what it means. Christ means this, the anointed king and the promised Messiah. And unlike these dead idols who surround us, you are the son of the living God. You've got to understand what's happening in the life of the 11 as Peter is making this declaration. Finally, the pieces are coming together. We've heard him talk about a kingdom for three years straight. Hundreds, if not thousands of interactions where he is using this language. But on the backdrop of this pagan city, we are connecting the dots. Not only does Jesus have a kingdom, but he is the exalted king. A lot of people develop a relationship with Jesus, but he only ever becomes their savior. He never becomes their Lord or their king. It's like, Jesus, I've got like this guilt for the way that I've lived, so if you could forgive my sins so I feel better about me, that would be great. But I'm not willing to turn the title deed of my life over to you. And can I tell you, converts might make heaven, but disciples make history. And the key characteristic of a disciple is one who has said, he is not just my savior. I've made him the king of my life. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. Now watch, watch, here's where it gets good. I think the reason why Jesus has led his disciples all the way to Caesarea Philippi in order for this revelation to be had and this announcement to be made is because when Peter says you are the Christ, watch, it serves as a prophetic indictment against the rulers of the air and the principalities and powers of darkness. Jesus goes to the very doorstep of rank paganism and he says, this is my kingdom, I am its king, and my father is the living God. Now I wanna show you something today that I would venture to say you have probably never seen before. And I will admit it's relatively nerdy, but you've gotta get it today because it's key to understanding the incredible richness of the passage here in Matthew 16. There was a church historian by the name of Eusebius who lived in the 200s. And he records this story. For in the Greco-Roman tradition, watch, a Greek god never dies. 
The mythology of their lives always includes immortality. These gods are born from above and they live forever, watching over and randomly interfering with the affairs of humanity. And even when a Greek god would appear to die, all you had to do was flip to the next chapter because then they would rise from the ashes like the phoenix to be reborn again. In all of the ancient Greek literature, none of their gods ever die except when you get to the time period that surrounds the declaration of Peter in Caesarea Philippi. Watch, watch. The historic literature of the first century records, watch, that there was a group of Roman sailors on their way to Italy when all of a sudden a voice shouted from the heavens, Pan is dead. The sailors are so shook by what they hear that once they reach Italy, they get off the boat and begin to tell all the people. A voice came from the heavens and it shouted, Pan is dead. It was so controversial. It was so shocking. It was so disruptive that the emperor Tiberius asked to personally interview the men who heard this voice on that ship because rumors began to spread all across the empire. The Greek gods have fallen. They were not gods at all. There's a new order being established and a new, more powerful God has been seated on the throne. When Peter makes his declaration that Jesus is Lord, the Father beckons from heavenly places. Pan is dead. I want you to see this, friend. When you declare that Jesus is Lord, you are simultaneously declaring every other idol that cannot see and cannot hear is dead. Like the Philistine statue to the god Dragon that fell down in front of the Ark of the Covenant and his head was severed from his body. When you declare Jesus is Lord, what you are saying is my life has been purchased by the blood, its ownership has been transferred, hell has lost its claim, the devil has lost its claim, abuse has lost its claim, sickness has lost its claim, I have been born again, not of the flesh, but of the spirit, and all my other gods are dead. Pan is dead, but Jesus is alive. Now watch, watch, watch. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for there's no way flesh and blood revealed this to you, but instead my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that now you are Peter. And upon this rock, upon this revelation that you have, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not will not and cannot prevail against it. Have you considered today, friend, that the church is not on defense, we are on offense? 
Can I tell you, when the declaration that Jesus is Lord beckons from the hallways and the sanctuary of this church, you never know where that word will travel. But I can promise you this, it does not return void and it accomplishes everything it has been sent forth to do. Just like in the testimony video you saw this morning, when the word of God is released, it'll knock on the door of a homeless camp in Seattle. It'll break down the door of a human trafficker in Bellevue. It will shake up the household of a rich person in Kirkland because when the word of God is released, it functions as a disruptive force that overcomes every objection, pulls down every stronghold, overcomes every roadblock because there is a new voice that is coming from the region. Jesus is king. There is none like him. There is none beside him. And he is coming for the reward of his suffering. It's interesting, Jesus says to him, I say to you, you are Peter. And do you know that this is a repeated pattern all throughout the biblical literature? Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Sarai's name is changed to Sarah. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And in verse 18, Simon's name is changed to Peter. I would venture to say some of you here today are in need of a spiritual name change. You were widowed, but God redeemed you. You were orphaned, but God adopted you. You were abandoned, but God rescued you. You were lost, but God found you. And if your name has been changed, then your past has been forgiven. Your present has been empowered and your future has been secured. Oh, but pastor, the church hurt me. I know, but it's a new day. Oh, pastor, that person abused me. I know, but it's a new day. You've got a new name. You've got a new identity because when Jesus is king, it changes everything. And watch what the scriptures declare in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's what I love. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is why I love baptism. (laughs) Because in baptism, we identify with his death so that we can identify with his life. In the waters of baptism, God declares you are dead to who you used to be and you are alive to what I know you to be. You once were disqualified. You once were broken. You once were dysfunctional. But when Jesus became king, he rewrote the entire narrative of your life and there is therefore now no shame or condemnation for those who are in Christ, the king, Jesus. And when Jesus tells the disciples, I I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
will not prevail. He's actually referring to a specific geographic marker in Caesarea Philippi. I wanted to show you the the gates of, of hell today. If you were to travel to Israel, you could actually visit what they consider to be the grotto of Pan. The historians in the first century would say that so much sacrifice went into this grotto that often water would turn bright red because of the blood. People would throw their goats in it. People would throw their children in it. And the legend was that if they sunk into the water, the God Pan had accepted their sacrifice. But if they were to stay floating on the water, that family would have to go and get another goat or sacrifice another child in order for Pan to look favorably upon them. Oftentimes, families would travel to Caesarea Philippi so that they could give sacrifice prior to the season of harvest that is coming. They wanted Pan to bless their crops. They wanted Pan to bless their soil. They wanted Pan to bless their seed. They wanted Pan to bless their business. They wanted Pan to bless their money and they were willing to sacrifice their own children to make that happen and I know it sounds wicked and I know it sounds pagan and I know it sounds uneducated and I know it sounds formulaic and I know it sounds so old school you can't even believe people did it but people do it in our world every day today they call it a clinic they call it medical choice but be not deceived we still sacrifice children today for the express purpose of having our business and our money blessed. And I'm here to tell you today, we don't have to sacrifice our children because I serve the God who sacrificed his one and only son. And he went into the grave for three days, but he raised a victorious king. And at his shout, and at his declaration, and by his stripes, and because of his blood, no longer do I fear death, hell, and the grave, because he's given life and life more abundance Jesus is king and that changes everything come on stay standing as we close today